And now, if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to the book of Hosea. Uh, It's the first minor prophet. It's right after Ezekiel and Daniel. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. The, The words will be up on the screen and also in the green piece that you were handed. About a year ago this time, I was a groomsman in a wedding, a good friend of mine from South Carolina, and went back home for the wedding. And uh, just as traditionally you do, we took the groom out that night uh, for, uh, before he got married. And there was a lot of people that went. The, the, the wedding party or the groomsmen went. And also there was like some parents of the groomsmen there. And there was this uh, one guy, he was a father of a guy, another guy that was in the wedding. And, and he came up to me that night and he said, uh, are you a pastor? And I said, yes. And he said, good, I've got something, uh, some things I want to tell you. I don't know if that's good or bad. Uh, so I was sort of freaking out a little bit. But he says, you know, I've got something I want to tell you. And I said, sure, what is it? And he said something very poignant. He said, I am holding, I have been holding inside of me over 40 years of guilt and shame. What do I do with that? How can I be free from that? I wonder if some of you are asking that same question this morning. What can I do? How can I be free? People in Hosea's day were asking a similar question, and Hosea answers it there in chapter 6. I'm just going to open us with, with two verses where he tells us it is God alone that can heal and God alone that can set us free. Hear the reading of God's Word. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Let's pray and set aside our time. Father, some of us this morning are feeling torn and struck down. And so we pray that you would heal us, that you would bind us up. Pray, Father, that you would come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It was the championship game. It was many years ago when I still played baseball, when I could still actually run to first base without being out of breath, and uh, it, was, it was the day for the championship. All year long, we had been the best team in the league. There was only one other team that really could compete with us, and we sort of went you know, neck and neck with them all year. We beat them in the regular season, and then it uh, came time for the final game for the championship, and the game, as we got into it, was, uh, it was very close all the way through. Uh, we were sort of back and forth, back and forth, and the pitching was, uh, was very good, so it was fairly low scoring. But as the game crept on, I began to sort of go through my head the batting order and realize that I was probably going to be coming up to bat in the last inning. And so I was sort of like working this out, you know, in my head. And sure enough, when the last inning came, I was, I was going to be fourth up to bat. So chances were I was going to get to hit. First two people got out, third person got on base. And then it was my turn up in the championship game. We were down four to three, one man on, and a chance to step up, a chance for glory. So I, 
was very nervous. I was sort of panicking inside, but also thinking this, you know, this could be it. This was the chance to hit the winning uh, home run or whatever it is uh, I thought I would do. And uh, I stepped up. I still remember it. I was facing Ryan Johnson. He was the best pitcher in our league. He was faster, threw harder, more movement than anybody else uh, that we faced all year. And so before I knew it, the count was two and two. And so now I'm two strikes down, we're two outs, we're one run down uh, in the championship game. And so I, I thought again, I, you know, resolved again, I, I, uh, I said to myself again, this is your chance, you know, for glory. It's your chance to hit, uh, get the big hit at the crucial time. And so I remember, the, I remember uh, looking Ryan in the eye, I remember his wind-up, I remember his follow-through and everything, and I, I swung with all my might, and I looked out to see how far the ball had gone and what I saw was the other team celebrating because the ball had landed in the catcher's mitt and I was out and the game was over. And it seemed there in that moment that it was me, it was my fault. I had lost the championship game. And it was this, as if my teammates' eyes were peering through my soul. I remember the look of disgust on the coach's face. I remember the crowd dying down in silence. And then I felt it. There it was. Shame. Shame. That little voice whispering in my ear. Failure. Loser. I knew you would fail. You always do. You've felt it too, haven't you? Shame whispering, sometimes yelling in your ear, loser, condemned, undesirable, ugly. You felt it too, haven't you? Shame. When your boss exposed your flaws, when you tripped and fell in front of a whole room of people, when your reputation was ruined, When you lost your job, you felt it too, haven't you? Shame. Maybe as the abused child hiding in the corner. Maybe as the one who was always told you would never measure up. You have felt it too, shame. That day on that baseball diamond, I looked at myself through my eyes and the eyes of my parents and the crowd and my teammates and my coach. But I didn't stop to ask the question, what did God see that day? What would it have been like to have looked down through the eyes of God? That's the question I want to ask this morning. Maybe it's a question that many of you have asked or haven't asked, or you're afraid to ask, or you're unsure of what the answer would be. But it's the question that I want to ask this morning, and we're going to look at shame, the scandal of our shame and the scandal of God's shame. Shame is scandalous. It's a scandalous thing. Philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre says that shame is like a hemorrhage of the soul. Dan Allender says that shame is the thief of intimacy. George Bernard Shaw says 
that we live in an atmosphere of shame and we are afraid and ashamed of everything that is real about us. In the book of Hosea, shame is the, the perversion of honor. It is the defiling of relationship. It is the twisting of something beautiful into something very ugly. The people in Hosea's day, the people he is speaking to, they have been shamed and they have shamed themselves. In order to demonstrate that, God is going to ask Hosea, going to ask his servant, his prophet, the man of God, he is going to ask him to do something that we would consider unthinkable. Look there in chapter 1. What does God ask of him? It says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, when he first talked to him, the first thing he says is this, go and take to yourself a wife of whoredom. Have children of whoredom, for the land commits a great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And so he went, he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and she bore him a son. Can you imagine being Hosea? God says to you, go and marry a woman who will be unfaithful to you, who will not love you, who will leave you, who will leave your children and go to be with other lovers. As we go on in the story, down to verse 6. The Bible says, She conceived again, and she bore a daughter. You notice the slight difference there? Before she had borne him a son, and now she just simply bears a daughter. It seems that the paternity is already in question. And God says, call her name Lo-Ruhamah, which means no mercy. I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel or forgive them at all. Down to verse 8, she, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived again and bore a son. Not him, a son, but she bore a son to someone. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Imagine just for a moment that you were Hosea. Imagine just for a moment that you were him. We don't know what he did for a living. Maybe he worked in the fields as a farmer. Maybe he worked in the city as a merchant. Maybe he worked in the, uh, in the temple uh, with worship. We really don't know. But just imagine that he came home one day and there are his three children crying. Where's mommy? Where's mommy? She left, daddy. That's what Hosea came home to. One day. We know this because uh, chapter 2, verse 5, Hosea says this, Their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. She said, I will go after my other lovers who give me bread and water and wool and flax and oil and drink. And now she is gone. She has left her husband. She has left uh, her children and she has abandoned them. She has entered into a world of shame. She has defiled herself. And now, can you imagine the way that the town was pro- were probably talking about her? The way that they labeled her. The rumors, the jokes, everything that went around and around. She was living in a world of shame. As George Bernard Shaw said, I quoted a minute ago, we too are living in a world of shame. You know, modern thought for the last probably 70 or 80 years, modern psychologists, modern thinkers and philosophers have done everything they can to rid our society of guilt 
and of shame. They've done that by, by systematically attacking the idea of truth or morality or sin. Because if we can get rid of sin, then there's nothing to feel shameful about, is there? There's nothing to feel uh, guilty about either. The interesting thing is that I think they've done a pretty good job of getting rid of sin, but they've been unable to get rid of shame. We know it. We feel it. We experience it. It is inside of us. And so the way that they have answered that was to begin to say, well, you know, shame is just, it's an aberration. It's, it's a problem of low self-esteem. It's a problem of, of poor self-image. That's what shame is. It's just a mild insecurity. But the Bible has sort of a different view of shame. The Bible says that shame comes from our inherent preference to seek out false gods. Our inherent preference to seek out idols. Our culture says that we are ashamed because we are victims. The Bible says we are ashamed because we are idolaters. We seek out false gods. Hosea says it very clearly. Chapter 2, verse 7, he's talking about Gomer. What is it that has caused her shame? What is it that she is going after? He says, she will pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She will seek them, but not find them. Again, in chapter 4, verse 10, talking about the people of Israel. They shall eat and not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply. Why? Because they have forsaken the Lord. It's that picture of idolatry, that picture of, that the idol is there. It seems like it's so easy to grab, but really, it's a mist. It's a, it's a ghost. And so the Bible says, you pursue, but you can't overtake. You seek, but you can't find. You eat, but you never feel satisfied. It's the power of idols that will cause us to give our entire lives to them, and they will give us nothing in return. If you want to know what your idols are, just ask yourself, what is it that causes you shame? What is it you feel shame for? Then you can find the root of your idol. I saw it in a lawyer who worked overtime again and again, avoiding his family, becoming a workaholic. Why? So he could protect his client? No, because he did not want the shame of loss in a courtroom. His idol was winning, was victory. I saw it in a woman who... Uh, recently missed a meeting and she came back and she lied about it to protect her reputation. Why did she lie? Because the, her, her status, her reputation was in danger and therefore she reacted. I saw it recently in a student who, who every time he gets less, anything less than an A, he reacts in vitriolic anger because he has, he's protecting his idol, his idol of perfectionism, his idol of Success. I see it in my own heart every time I teach or preach. I think it has to be the perfect sermon. It has to be the perfect lesson. If not, I am ashamed because I have not lived up to my God of success, my God of performance. That is what shame does, and it tells us, it tells us lies. You, you can imagine Gomer. She is thinking, if only I could find the man that really loves me. If only I could find that true relationship, then I would be satisfied. I would be happy. I was thinking on the baseball field, if only I could be the one to be the hero. If I could be the one to hit that home run, I would be cool. I would be satisfied. I would be uh, happy. 
We all do it. If I could be the one to never lose a case, if I could be the one to never disappoint other people's expectations, if I could be the one to always have it together, always be perfect, if I could be the one to never disappoint my husband or wife or children, then I would be happy. What are your false gods? What are the false idols that you are pursuing this morning? Reputation, status, wealth, relationships. What are they? The problem with them is that we begin to trust in them. And it's a misplaced trust, isn't it? Because we give them the power. We make them the judge. Now they have the power to give or retract life. They have the power to say whether we are accepted or denied. They have the power to say whether we are lovable or not lovable, desirable or undesirable. But that is not their place. It is the place of God alone to be our judge. Because that misplaced trust, what does it do? It completely destroys any ability for intimacy, doesn't it? Why? Well, because in order to be intimate, we have to be exposed. And we don't want to be exposed because it risks, again, that we might be shamed. It risks, again, that we might be the one in front of everyone. That's why Jean-Paul Sartre said that, that, to, that hell was to be looked at. Hell was to be beneath the gaze of other people, to be exposed like that. You know, after that day on the baseball field, uh, I never played organized baseball again. And as I was working on the sermon, I realized uh, why. And it's because uh, I was not going to go out there and be the fool again. I was not going to go out there and be the goat of the team. I was not going to risk being exposed as a poor athlete or whatever the view would have been. So I never again had an, as it were, an intimate relationship with baseball again. And some of you know what I mean with more, even more personal things. Intimacy with your husband, your wife, children, your parents. It is difficult because you fear the shame of really being known, really being seen, really being exposed for who you are. A person came and spoke to me several years ago and said, I, I just, I feel I can't be myself with my spouse because I'm afraid that if I say what I'm really thinking, if I act the way I really want to act, if I be who I really am, then they will reject me. They will no longer accept me. That's what shame does. That's what idolatry does. And that's why the psalmist cries out in chapter 56, It is in God I trust. I will not fear for what can man do to me. He has fled from the idols and said, I put it all, I put everything, my identity, all of who I am in the basket of God. I put it on red or black and I let the wheel spin. And I will not be ashamed. That's the scandal of our shame. What is the scandal of God's shame? We need to go back to our story of Hosea and Gomer. Remember where we left Gomer. She has left the household. She has become undesirable. She has become a woman who has abandoned her family, abandoned her kids. And the Bible tells us that as she goes on, when she can't pay the bills anymore, she has to sell herself into prostitution. 
And as we come to the beginning of chapter 3, she's not only done that, but she's now had to sell herself into slavery. In the beginning of chapter 3, she is about to be auctioned at a public auction, to be stood up in a place like this, to be stripped naked, to be exposed, to be born before all people, to be auctioned as a slave. She is at the height, she is at the peak of her shame. We get to chapter 3, we begin to realize that this is more than a story. It is a parable. It's an allegory. The story of Hosea and Gomer is not just the story of two people. It is the story of God and His people. And, And we are Gomer. That's what the Bible begins to tell us, that we are like Gomer. We are the ones who have gone out and sought other better lovers. We are the ones who have gone out and sought in false gods and idolatry our satisfaction. We have become Gomer. And we are at the height of our shame there with her on the auction block with prostituting hearts and a slave mentality. And the question is this, what will Hosea do with his wife of shame? When he hears about the auction, he hears that there she will be auctioned off in front of everyone, stripped naked. What will he do? And of course, the bigger question is, what will God do with his people who have shamed themselves? What will God do with them? We begin to see that in chapter 11, that this is a love story, that God will not give up on his people. Listen to the tender words of the Lord. He narrates their journey together. He almost wrestles in his heart about what to do with his people who are there on the auction block. This is what it says, chapter 11. When Israel, my people, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, burning offerings to idols. And yet, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them, and I fed them. Down in verse 8. The Lord begins to wrestle this out. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Again, in chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, he says it again very similarly. What will he do with his people? Therefore, behold, I will allure her. It is a love story. I'll bring her to the wilderness. I'll speak tenderly to her. There I will give her her vineyards, and I'll make the valley of Achor, which is the valley of troubling, a door of hope. God pursues his people relentlessly. Do you know that God pursues you with a relentless passion? C.S. Lewis said he is the hound of heaven, that he comes after us. He comes after us as a lover does his Beloved. And so what does he tell Hosea to do? 
chapter 3. How will he demonstrate it? He says this to Hosea. The Lord said to me, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. And so, he says, I went and I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. He goes after her. He goes after her to pursue her. Can you imagine Hosea at this time, though? Here he is going to buy his wife back off the auction block in the midst of public humiliation and shame. you imagine what they probably said about him? How foolish he was? How stupid, how ignorant, how crazy he must have been to do this? But of course, there's always the option that he might buy her just to hurt her. She, she had hurt him, right? And now this could be his opportunity to buy her back. He could make her feel what he had felt. He could make her suffer the way that he had suffered. You ever felt that way? Anybody ever shamed you? You just wanted it. You just wanted them to know. You just wanted them to hurt. You just wanted them to feel what you feel. You just wanted it to cost them what it has cost you. Luckily, that is not the way that God loves us, and it's not the way that Hosea loves Gomer. He says in verse 3, what did he say to her? What did he do when he bought her back from the place of shame? He says in verse 3, I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, and so will I also be to you. He says to her, Hosea, come home. Hosea, you are now again my wife. Hosea, Gomer, you are now again my beloved. Gomer, you will eat and drink at my table for many years and I will be faithful to you. Instead of punishing her, he turns her tragedy, he turns her shame into testimony. Can you imagine what she probably said after that? She, she probably was saying, look what I would have been. I would have been this. I would have been a slave. I would have been a prostitute. I may not have lived much longer, but Hosea bought me. Turns shame and tragedy into testimony. What's your testimony this morning? Are you able to say, I would have been an idolater, but the Lord, but God bought me. My marriage would have fallen apart completely, but God bought me. I would have been lost in the world of slavery to money and reputation and status, but God bought me. Turns tragedy into testimony. If we want to see the real scandal of God's shame, we have to go to another place, even a place away from the book of Hosea, and we have to go to the cross, to the real place of shame, the place where hell seemed to win, the place where death seemed to laugh, where the powers of darkness seemed to overcome the powers of light, the day that Jesus died on the cross. It was a day of shame, where he was put on a cross 
stripped, exposed before the world to die a death of condemnation. That is the scandal of God's shame, that He did not simply take us off the auction block, but He came and took our place there. He came and stood in the place of shame that we might not have to. The Bible turns things around. It has a, the gospel has a very interesting way of turning things around. And so if you read Colossians 2, 14 and 15, it says that Jesus took those things that seemed like shame and he nailed them to the cross. He took the powers of darkness, Satan, death, and hell itself. And what does it say? He put them to open shame. That is what the cross did. Instead of putting us to shame, He puts our enemies to shame. Instead of us being in the place of shame, He takes it for us. And so we return to our original question. What would it be like to look through the eyes of God? Have you been looking through other eyes too long? The eyes of the world, the eyes of yourself, the eyes of your parents or your spouse. Whose eyes are you looking through when you look in the mirror? When you look through those eyes and you look to the auction block, what will you see? You will see a slave. You will see a prostitute. But what, what friend would it be like if you looked through the eyes of God. What would he see there on the auction block? He would see his bride. He would see the one that he loves. He would see the one that he would move heaven and earth to save and to marry. Have you been looking through the eyes of the world too long? Do you still see that wounded boy walking back to the dugout? you still see that a frightened child hiding in the closet? Do you still see the one who has failed in business, the one who has failed your family? What would it be like just for a moment to look through the eyes of God? What would you see? I hope you can see it, even if dimly. Through His eyes, we are his bride. We are his beloved. So I say to you this morning, in the midst of your shame, flee to Christ. Run away from the other lovers. Look through his eyes and see the bride. Flee to Christ. Flee away from other lovers. Look through his eyes. Flee to Christ and you will see that you, even you, are His dear, cherished, and beloved child. Let's pray.